Hi everyone, welcome to Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Mathis Grandchamp and myself, Loïc Meunier. We both pursue a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cementov Development LTD, and Red Bull. Charles-Henri Monchot is CIO at CIS Group with 25 years of international investment experience. He previously held various positions, such as CIO at Almal Capital PSC in Dubai, Deutsche Bank, EFG, Rothschild, Lombard Audi, and BNP. He has an executive MBA from IE Business School and a master's in finance from HEC Geneva. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Charles-Henri. Hi, Mr. Monchot. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. I'd love to hear about your background and history on how you ended up as Chief Investment Officer at CIS Group. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so first, let me define a bit about what is um, what is the job of uh, CIO, so Chief Investment Officer about. Um, I think you can you can compare it like in any industry, you know, you have the three, uh, let's say, uh, functions um, that can apply. So you have R&D, research and development, then you manufacture and then you do the marketing and sales. So basically, CIO is uh, the, the goal is to cover these three aspects in one role, but obviously with the help of a team. Uh, so R&D is about uh, finding, uh, let's say, research, let's say, invest new investment ideas would be in terms of asset allocation, in terms of uh, investment themes, but also uh, when it comes to you know uh, selecting the best underlying investments will be a stock, a bonds, a funds, an ETF, a hedge funds, or whatever. So that's the R&D part. It can also cover about let's say thinking about new kind of products to be let's say promoted to to clients. The manufacturing part is making sure that uh, what is identified as um, let's say attractive investment opportunity is uh, manufactured in the right way. So that means, you know, in accordance with the uh, objectives of the clients, uh, also, you know, by fulfilling some, uh, um, let's say, um, uh, requirements uh, from a regulatory perspective and also uh, making sure that in terms of uh, risk uh, parameters, you stay within uh, the predefined boundaries. So that's the manufacturing part. So making sure that the end product is is of good quality and, and then the last part which is the marketing and and sales so making sure that your products are known to the product that to the to, from from the public that your investment views are also presented in a way which is readable and also accessible uh so here comes let's say uh all the communication part will it be internal or external so that could be through uh blogs through articles, uh, through presentations, uh, but also using the different type of, uh, uh, let's say, vehicles when it comes to communicate. So that could be a traditional media like TV and radio. Uh, it could be presenting at conferences and it could be also obviously to use uh, social media. So th- this is, let's say, why this role is, is, is super interesting because you, you look obviously at the investment world from a research perspective, then you overlook, let's say, products and solutions, and then you participate to the efforts uh, of uh, uh, explaining and presenting what you're doing. Obviously you do this with the team, so it's also very important to make sure 
that the team is, let's say, organized in a way uh, that create coherence and that create efficiency when it comes to delivering on, on the three stages I just mentioned. So being a CIO is a, is a critical position that requires a diverse set of both soft and hard skills. What do you think are the re required skills to be a good CIO? Okay, so as explained before, because you need to fulfill, let's say, very different type of task, that means you need to be ready for these tasks. Uh, and that, let's say, includes both hard skills and soft skills. In terms of hard skills, there is no secret. You know, it's because you cover, uh, I cover, let's say, all asset classes. We need to build a kind of, let's say, toolbox where you are able to not only understand, uh, but also explain uh, what's going on across different asset classes. So to give you an example, let's say in my career, to build this toolbox, I've been managing bond portfolios, I've been managing equity portfolios, I've been managing fund of hedge fund portfolios. I perform also some research tasks will be on the equity side, on the fund selection side, also the bond side. And then I've been attending investment committees before being able to chair these committees. Um, so that, let's say, the kind of art skills that you, you need to build. It also includes writing skills. It also includes uh, communication skills when it comes to uh, talk to the media or talk in front of clients. And then there are the soft skills because you need to understand the emotions of your clients, uh, of your teammates, um, of your shoulders, of your managers. Um, so yeah, that, that includes, let's say, uh, a lot of different skills. But again, you know, this is what makes, let's say, the, the task quite interesting. Uh, obviously, it's traceful, um, but it's also very uh, fascinating. And I, I think that we can uh, talk about this in more details if you want afterwards. But obviously, I think that the key for me, let's say the motto is, is really about passion uh, because I'm, I see my job more as, as a hobby than, than anything else because I really like what I do. I, I know it sounds a bit weird for some people who might not be interested in the finance, but to me, let's say being paid to uh, understand what's going on in the world, how the markets are evolving, the different news uh, is great because I, I'm very, let's say, passionate about macro, about geopolitics, about financial markets. And you know it's always, let's say, it moving. There is always something new coming, something unexpected. Um, so I think it's 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 fascinating. And I really is uh, to me is again this this is my hobby. I think that's a luxury when you uh, let's say um, uh, wake up every morning to say that's good because I'm going to work, but I'm really going to do something, which is my passion. You know, it's uh, and that's it. Great. And you mentioned some previous hold you have previous roles you you held. Can you walk us or just give us an idea of your your background? Yeah. So <clears throat> initially, I, I didn't want to work in finance. Um, I was um, I was I was interested by horse riding. That's it. So I was doing financial uh, studies just to make sure that my parents didn't get too nervous about this. Uh, but then I had the uh, opportunity to have an internship into a Swiss bank. And I wasn't very motivated to have this internship, to be honest. But then, you know, I, I was in the um, in the middle of the trading desk 
and I, I, I suddenly got fascinated by the markets. And I remember, you know, there was a CIO there, you know, overseeing the whole team. And I told myself, I think I finally know what I want to become. And I knew that it not, was not going to be a straight line and that it was really about building all of the different skill sets I mentioned before. So I decided to, to build my own toolbox and I use whatever opportunity to do that. So that means that once there was, let's say, interesting job on the bond side, I say, well, I'm not going to be a bond specialist my whole life, but at least I'm going to understand about bonds. Uh, the same with equity, the same with moving abroad, you know, trying to understand, let's say, different market, different types of clients. And also that also something to do with uh, continuing education, you know, because it doesn't mean that you finish your master, that things are over because in finance, it's always evolving. So this is why I did the CFA, I did the CAIA, I did the, the Charter Market Technician, why I, I learned so much about behavioral finance, about trends, uh, intermarket relationship and so on. Um, then I, I did this uh, MIT uh, uh, curriculum about blockchain, you know, because I really wanted to understand blockchain. Then I did with the LSC something about real estate because I wanted to understand real estate. So you really need to, to, to build this kind of toolbox be in a situation also of market stress because there are always some boom and bust. So whatever you roll, you know, during a crash, you, you learn something from it. And then, you know, be also in positions where you need to uh, go out of your comfort zone. Like uh, I moved to Dubai, for instance, this is a region I didn't know well. Um, and that forced you, you know, to go out of your, let's say, comfort zone. And this is where you grow. And also a very important thing because um, two important things is that I move a lot. And I know in Switzerland, for example, it's not very fashionable because you know, the ideal CV for many uh, headhunters and, and, and firms and banks is, okay, this guy has worked 15 years at UBS and 15 years at Pictet. Wow, that's great. No, I've been a bit, let's say, a lot of the beaten uh, track on this one. I've moved a lot. But then you know, I learned a lot because each time I had to reinvent myself. And the other thing is that I work for both big brands and small firms. And you always learn something. In big banks, you learn from the mistake from others. This is great. And then in small firms, you learn from your own mistake, which is even better. Um, so I, I think you can really learn from both type of uh, of, um, uh, of of banks. And I, I think that's uh, and I think I'm pretty sure it can apply to other industries as well. And I think that was really what let's say uh, made me growing in different roles. Uh, it's not finished, and I hope to continue doing this the next 20 or 30 years. Um, but so far, you know, I, I learned a lot from different experiences. Great. And so, still as for your background, from 2006 to 2009, you were head of investments for institutional client at uh, Lombard Woodsy, which yep. means you had to navigate through the 2008 financial crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so at the time, uh, I was running fund of hedge funds. So for uh, French institutional clients, I was in Lombardy in Paris and running around, we had the 1 billion euros at the time in, in fund of hedge funds for these institutional clients. And I think that if you ask me one key takeaway from this is that I learned about um, the, the, the you know, three different risks uh, that can come, unfortunately, all together. Um, which is the concentration risk, the liquidity risk, and the counterparty risk. 
And I must say, I was lucky enough because, you know, when you run front of fetch funds, your role is to um, select uh, external managers who are running hedge funds. So you need to perform what is called due diligence. So then you travel and you meet with these managers and then you find out whether or not you want to allocate money to them. And obviously many of these managers sit in the US and by coincidence, I was in New York uh, the week of Lehman. And I, th I saw really the blood in the street because you know it, this week, that very specific week, was not just about Lehman. Certainly, you had all of these big banks in on Wall Street, which were you know on the cusp of collapsing. So, like Morgan Stanley, for instance, was very close to go under. Uh, Mary Lynch, you know, had to merge with Bank of America. So then you realize you not know, the risk of what does it mean leverage. Because a bank is very, by definition, is leverage. And you can see that when asset prices are going down, when, let's say, the assets, uh, deposits are flowing out, then you put the whole system at risk. So I, I saw this, you know, the counterparty risk. Why selecting the right counterparties, you know, um, is very important. The other one is concentration risk. Because when you went to make money, certainly at some point, you take very concentrated debt. Um, and, you know, the thing is that this concentration bet, when things turn nasty, can be, can really be painful because you are full seller into something that you might be, let's say, heavy into in terms of uh, investments. And then suddenly you find yourself, let's say, in a quarter. And the last one, uh, and, and then I, I forgot another one, by the way, liquidity. Liquidity is is very important. Liquidity when you don't need it, it's not important. But certainly when everyone needs liquidity, that becomes very nasty. And the fourth risk is leverage. You know, the margin call. You, you probably watch this movie, Margin Call. You, know, you, can, you can learn a lot, by the way, from this movie. Liqu liquidity uh, leverage is that when you're leveraged and you're a fourth seller, things get, let's say, even worse. So if you put these four risks together, so counterparty, uh, concentration risk, liquidity risk, leverage risk, Lehman created the perfect storm when suddenly all of these four risks, you know, came together and made, you know, some hedge funds and banks and investors, you know, imploding. Uh, and I think for this, you know, you don't invest in the same way after Lehman than before Lehman. Great. And from your own experience, how important were the ramifications of the financial crisis in France or Switzerland compared to the U.S.? So, well, first in Switzerland, um, we are very heavy in hedge funds. So, so actually, you know, Switzerland kind of uh, first lost, you know, uh, some... Well, we see some money, some a bit of credibility. That, for instance, there were some many banks and and family offices invested to, into Madoff at the time. But then, because the the world was you know close to collapse, uh, what we saw in Switzerland, because Switzerland is a safe haven, is that money started to flow flew in you know to flow in Switzerland at the time, because it is seen as let's say a, a safe place. Um, so actually, that was 
rather net net was not a bad let's say development for 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 Switzerland. But you know definitely I think I think you know what is great with the US is that okay maybe they are the the biggest tech risk taker, but the system is is strong and is very is I call it anti fragile. So usually they they get better after after crisis than before crisis. And where they did very well is that the Fed injected, you know, very aggressive liquidity. And also they created this bad bank where they put all of the bad assets into, you know, one recipe and that saved the banks. So the, the U.S. banks became stronger compared to the rest of the world, you know, following Lehman and Madoff than, than before. I think that's the strength of the U.S. is that they are very good at, let's say, cleaning the past and, and starting from a clean sheet. And, and and become even stronger. You almost worked your, your entire career in Switzerland and it's it's globally renowned for its banking sector discretion and confidentiality for their clients. I, however, there, there have been changes in the recent years due to international pressure for greater financial transparency. From your own experience, did you witness any changes or evolutions since the beginning of your career? And can you elaborate on that? Well, I think now is uh, Switzerland is probably a, a place where it's the most difficult to open a bank account. Because, uh, yes, I, I work a lot for Swiss Bank and in Switzerland, but I also work in the Bahamas. I work in Dubai. Uh, you know, I, I work in, so in London, uh, get, you know, kept, always kept some, let's say, link with, uh, with the U.S. And I must say that, let's say, if you are um, someone, let's say, entrepreneur, um, based in let's say eastern country uh, or an african country and you want to open to open a bank account um switzerland is not the easy place to open a bank account i think compliance requirements have become very strong it remains let's say the the, the highest premium brand name in terms of uh, let's say swiss bank uh, in terms of private banking but it's it's becoming very very difficult to let's say um, send money to Switzerland. It's easier to open bank accounts in many other jurisdictions, and and this is a trend that you know the world needs to be aware. But that means that you know the, the, I think the private banking money um, is is of very good quality. First, from let's say a KYC perspective, so know your customer perspective. But also from the, the type of clients who are opening accounts in Switzerland. What's changed is that obviously when there was bank secrecy, the, the business model, the, the value added was uh, was different than today. And today a Swiss private bank okay will will not accept, let's say, uh, clients who are not strong in terms of background, in terms of uh, a KYC. Uh, but that means also that they had to reinvent themselves. So that means, let's say, providing better, more higher quality investment solutions. Uh, let's say, being able to differentiate uh, from other jurisdictions, um, and then come with new type of solutions with the private markets, uh, digital assets, and so on. Great. And now I'd like to pivot and talk about the. Uh, the U.S. and China tensions that are proving to be costly for both countries, for example, that China's holding of U.S. Treasury are being at their lowest since 2009. How do you measure risk from a geopolitical risk perspective and position yourself to minimize your exposure to the downsides that could 
emerge from something like this? Yeah, so it's a, well, it's a very interesting development, and um, it is indeed a lose-lose for the timing for for both U.S. and China, in the way that uh, for the first time since um, you know the, the the flows are tracked, um, the FDI, so foreign direct investments to China after negative uh, on a year-on-year basis. So, and that that is the reason being that yes, indeed, you know they are less investments coming from, from the US, but also from Europe going to China. And in the meantime, as you rightly pointed out, the China holdings of US treasuries are the lowest in 2009. And that's not the great news for the US because the US uh, never had you know, such a big debt load and they have a big you know, uh, budget deficit, which means that they need to finance this budget deficit. So the fact that China is buying less US Treasury than before is not a great news. And it means that you, obviously, geopolitics does have some consequences on asset allocation. So give me, let me give you a few examples of what does it mean. First, that means that there is a supply issue, sorry, there is a demand issue uh, added to the supply issue of US Treasuries. Supply issue because the US is printing a lot of money and needs to finance, let's say, deficits. Um, and then demand issue in the sense that there are less demand coming from abroad than before. So Saudi Arabia is buying less U.S. treasuries, Japan is buying less U.S. treasuries, but China is also buying less. So this supply-demand situation for bonds is not good. That means that bond yields are at risk, you know, once we get after the current cyclical downturn where we see, you know, bond is coming down. Once this is over, you know, there is always a risk of bond yields moving on, on the upside. Uh, and if bond yields you know, are, are moving higher, this is not a good news for uh, risk assets, for instance, because if you can get five or six percent on 10 year in the US, why should you take you know, too much risk in our asset classes? So that's, let's say, one example of, uh, uh, of risk and, and, and you know, with all of the consequences of asset allocation. Another example is that. If China is losing grounds, orders are winning. So who are the winners? India, for the first time ever, is part of the top five market cap in the world. So Indian companies, India equities are doing very well. Um, Vietnam is, you know, is is benefiting from this. Mexico uh, and Canada, you know, were neighbors from the U.S. are benefiting from the fact that. The U.S. is 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 you know make the choice to reshore or nearshore or friendshore some of their previous uh, you know investment abroad. So there are you know the, these two examples shows you that they are both risk and opportunities. So risk is is more here on the on the bond side, and the opportunities are those countries which are replacing China when it comes to offshore you know. Uh, some of some capacity, some capabilities. So now we are seeing less investment to China, but more investment from the US in India, uh, in Mexico, or in the rest of Asia. Like for instance, the iPhone has moved from China. IPhone, some of the iPhone manufacturing has moved from China to India. Great. And you mentioned iPhones. So uh, pivoting towards, uh, let's say. Uh, chips suppose i believe that investing in nvidia is a promising opportunity uh notwithstanding its ip ratio 
how would you navigate the the Biden administration's rest restriction on the sale of certain Nvidia product to China for na national security reasons lead that could lead to a, a significant drop in sales in the Chinese market? You know, how would you approach the geopolitical risk there? Yeah, again, there are risks and opportunities. Um, well, first, I think it's interesting when you look at the latest NVIDIA results, certainly Singapore is making 10% of the sales. What's going on there? Right? It's probably China using Singapore as a pass-through to kind of, let's say, avoid the sanctions. So, you know, it's uh, that means that some of the sanctions are avoidable. Now, you're probably aware that in the U.S., there is a CHIPS Act where Biden makes uh, subsidizing uh, the building of uh, semiconductors manufacturing capabilities in the US. So that means that some industries, some companies are benefiting from this. You know, when, when, when the US decides to reshore some of these, let's say, CHIPS manufacturing capabilities, uh, that means that when they, once they build the manufacture, uh, they're going to use, let's say, industrial companies to do so. Um, they're going to also uh, enable NVIDIA to continue producing, you know, a lot of chips without taking geopolitical risk. So here, you know, it's, uh, it's I think the opportunity is with the, is with the role that U.S. will play uh, in the years to come. They are, let's say, using different type of builds to make sure that geopolitics geopolitics is becoming less a risk for them in the years to come. Great, thank you. Uh, let's move to to a whole other subject. During the 28th meeting of the conference of the parties, the COP28, more than 20 nations, including the the United States, called for a tripling of nuclear energy to drive down emission. What effect is what effect is this going to have on different markets, for example, uh, uranium supply and demand or the impact on oil and gas industry? Yeah, so that was a very interesting uh, COP28. I think, you know, it's um, the move on, on, let's say, ESG and sustainability, which has started uh, already years ago, is, uh, is leading to maybe a policy which is going to become more pragmatic. I think the, the, the ambition of uh, becoming carbon neutral, reducing CO2 emissions and so on is great. Um, but the thing is that for the time being, uh, it's not very effective. So to give you a few numbers, so $500 billion, for instance, in Germany have been invested into uh, new uh, green infrastructure projects. Uh, but so far, you know, they, it's it's sad to see that in terms of megawatts, uh, use of megawatts, the um, uh, coal is um, is a very strong, let's say, resource. Uh, it's number one resource in, Germ in, in Germany when it comes to megawatts. Um, and, and by the way, this year is the year where China, uh, sorry, India, is using the highest, let's say, volume of coal for the electricity. So... Why is this happening is because the move to renewables is a great concept, but it's it's much slower than initially expected. So let's say, yes, there have been some investment into uh, hydroelectric powers uh, or, or natural gas, let's say, made factories. But for the time being, it's not offsetting, uh, let's say, the loss of uh, energy uh, production 
coming from other sources. So we're going to probably going to move into something more pragmatic, say, okay, we need to make the planet great again. Uh, but, you know, we need to be more pragmatic. You know, we, we need to not kill, let's say, people and the economy because of this Green Deal. One, uh, you, you mentioned ray, uh, nuclear. I think there is a big push towards nuclear in uh, in the in the US uh, with uh, but also you know uh, sorry not uh, mainly in Asia uh, and also in Europe um, if you look at the numbers of um, uh, uh, proposed uh, nuclear reactor reactors that uh, uh, needs to be to be uh, built uh, in Asia uh, in the in the years to come the 10 year next 10 years, we're talking about 220 uh, in just for, for Asia. Um, in, in construction, we have 35, you know. Uh, so you can see the acceleration here of the number of nuclear power that are supposed to be built, not only in, in, in Asia, but also in other places. Um, and, and this is creating also an opportunity because when you build the nuclear uh, plants, obviously you need, you need uranium. And uranium is among these uh, commodities uh, which are facing uh, a supply demand imbalance. So there is not enough supply already compared to demands. And this is pushing uranium prices higher. They're already above the pre-Fukushima uh, levels. Um, and that means that going forward, if you know the COP28 message, which was about we were 20 countries to say that uh, nuclear production, uh, let's say nuclear plants should be three times what they are today. That means that they will have to buy more uraniums, which is going to be bullish for uranium, but also uranium miners. Uranium miners have been the big, let's say, winners of these trends towards nuclear. Great. And we talked about gas emissions, so I want to touch on Bitcoin, which is driving driving emissions up. In the recent years, we saw we saw everything switching completely his mentality about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Even now, moving forward with BlackRock's uh, Bitcoin ETF. On the other hand, we have Jamie Dimon, who's completely against cryptocurrency and would completely shut it down. What is your perspective on cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology? So first, uh, when you say Bitcoin is um... Is, uh, is participating to, uh, to more uh, CO2 emissions. It's, not, it, it's right from a past perspective. It might not be right from a future perspective. And also you have to put this into context. Like for instance, when you use, let's say your laptop and, and you, know, you, you, you use Google servers or let's say Apple servers, uh, it's not carbon neutral by the way. Right? It's also you know, uh, participating to emissions. When it comes to blockchain and, and cryptos, um, we have, a and I have a positive view on it. Uh, we believe that blockchain will lead to many new applications. Um, it's definitely the future and, and cryptos goes, you know, uh, uh, together with this. Uh, we, we do see, you know, when it comes to investments, we classify cryptos and digital assets in three categories. The first one is Bitcoin that we see as digital gold. You know, Keep in mind that currently we are, you know, going through an experiment, which is fiat currency. For the first time in history, money is not backed by anything which is tangible. Before it was the case, you know, uh, uh, currencies were backed by gold. This is not the case anymore. So Bitcoin is try trying to solve this issue 
by having, let's say, this halving process where you, you cut by half, let's say, the new coins being generated every four years, and also uh, by capping the, 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 let's say, the long-term supply of coins uh, is going to be uh, uh, capped at slightly more than 21 million. And we are already, let's say, uh, you know, more than 85% already being mited. So supply is, is extra, uh, extra supply is already disappearing. Um, so, and this is why, you know, we like it as digital gold because supply is, is limited. We believe that demand will continue to grow. Uh, unlike uh, golds, you know, it can, it can be, uh, uh, let's say, sense uh, from, from one wallet to another wallet or from, let's say, uh, anyone to another person. So that's, I think that's, that's good, that's strong. So we do see it as a digital gold. And by the way, it has been behaving a bit like gold recently. So more volatile, but the direction has been uh, has been the same. Uh, then, so that's the first way we look at it. Then the second category we call it, like I said, the uh, so the altcoins, and we call them hyperliquid uh, venture capital. Why is that? You know, with all of these projects on the blockchain, they are fantastic uh, upside potential, but we know that many of them will disappear. Okay, so you need to invest into them, like you will invest to a VC fund or a VC direct deal. But the big difference is that there is daily and even, let's say, overnight and over the weekends liquidity. So that's just that's a difference with VC. So very promising to the returns, but many of them will disappear. Um, and, you know, they are not that easy investable. So for us, you know, this, this blockchain, and so that's the second tier. The, the third tier is going to be tokenized assets. That's the big trend. So in the years to come, Many assets which are non-tradable uh, will 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 start to be, let's say, buyable and tradable by you know many investors because some assets uh, are not easily invested, but through tokenization they can be slid into pieces and then made investable by by the masses. So think about real estate, think about private equity, think about VC. So tokenization is going to provide, let's say, this access to these non-traditional uh, assets. So Again, three thing in three ways. So digital gold, but more vol volatile than gold. That's number one, Bitcoin. Number two, Alcon, so Ether and the other ones. Ultra liquid VC, because like VC, very risky, but it's traded 24 seven. Uh, so that makes them much more volatile. And the third category is tokenized assets. So think about private assets, but here in this case, um, uh, you know, it's possible to trade them uh, every day and if not overnight great thank you now moving towards our mentorship section section you mentioned before the qualities required for a cio but more gen generally what qualities do you believe are essential for effective leadership in finance and how can someone develop these qualities well you know i think i think being being curious and passionate to me is the mindset is super important. It's a bit like in sports. Okay, it's good to have high quality, but if you don't have a mindset, you know, uh, on the courts or on the field, you are no one, you know, even if you're good. So it's very important to have this mindset of, let's say, you know, willing to, to kill for it, uh, learning, learning, let's say, the, the hard way, uh, working hard. And then being curious about the world with, let's say, also disruption, innovation, new things coming and, and be passionate about it. 
So to me, these are, let's say, the, the highest uh, quality um, to, uh, to succeed. How should students go about finding an internship? Yeah, internships are key because I think internship is, is really a way to try to understand what do you like, you know, as a, as a job, you know, within a bank or within, let's say, any company. So internship, I, I see the ones who are making it through, you know, uh, for instance, with our bank is, well, some of them, they do it through social media. So they, they take their LinkedIn and say, oh, by the way, you know, I follow you. I would like to love with you. You know, I'm very passionate. I want to work hard. And then you know, when you receive a personal message, you know, uh, on, on the social media, you want to give them a chance. So that's, uh, let's say, one way. Uh, the other way is, uh, let's say, um, spreading, you know, words from, from, from one colleague to another. Uh, it can be the, you know, the big boss, you know, uh, uh, knowing someone who wants to intern. But generally speaking, let's say, those who invest, let's say, send their, their CVs um, through, social, through social media and through other ways, that makes them being different, uh, increase definitely the, 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 the chances. So I, I really encourage anyone to do this internship because first you need to, it's a good way to understand the markets, understand also finance, um, but then um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also uh, a way to pick, let's say the role you would like to do in the foreseeable future. But don't hesitate to call calls or use, let's say, social media or any other means to let's say put yourself let's say uh, uh, in a different way than others uh go like yesterday i was presenting in lausanne at their uh, uh let's say uh, investment club and you know it's the guys came and they show their passion and so on so then you know you meet with them and you tell yourself wow you know these guys uh, would be interesting to to have as the interns so you need to use different ways but uh it, it's key both because you know you need to have some experience but also to choose you know in which area you want to go in the foreseeable future and what advice would you give to someone starting in the in the financial industry i think you know read a lot um try to invest yourself because if you invest yourself you're going to make sure that you know you you invest into winning uh stories and instruments um, I think it's always good to try to, let's say, have a role with, uh, why not with a large firm to start with? So they will not give you much leeway in terms of day-to-day -day work, but at least, you know, you will understand, you will learn from them and you will be able to put on your CV a well-known name, which might, you know, give you access to maybe a less known name, but where you play a, a more, let's say, interesting role. Mm. And moving on to the rapid fire questions, you you mentioned about reading. What is one book you would recommend to our listeners? So, well, there are there are so many, let's say, financial books. I really like the, the, this uh, random walk to Wall Street because it kind of kill. It's it's a bit um, brutal because then you realize that no one knows. <laughs> That's it's a long, let's say, random walk indeed. But at least, you know, it's set the scene, you know, you, you know that it's very difficult to get right. And it makes you, let's say, a bit humble when it comes to your investments. And there are some there are some good tips, actually, because it's, it's you know, makes you becoming a better investor. And I think that's um, that's one of the key books, you know, to look at.
And we also talked about uh, internships. So on a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? But it's true that you know a high GPA, which will lead you to a, the best universities, and when you do internship, you know you 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 send a CV, and your CV will be among I don't know 100, 200, if not 500 CVs. So obviously the the school is your is your let's say identity card, and if the school has a good name, so you guys are lucky, you know you you are with McGill, it's it's a great name, including the financial industry. So probably, you know, it is also part, you know, if you have good, let's say, grades and you had some good grades in the high school, this will help. I don't think it's a career killer if you don't, let's say, uh, study in the best universities, not at all. But let's say the path might be longer and more painful. So actually, let's say, having, let's say, great grades and being with the best universities help uh, and, and probably, let's say, maximize your chance to have, let's say, a first experience with, with a good name. And if you wouldn't be in the financial industry, what would you be doing instead? Well, the, the good thing with being in the financial industry is that you look a lot of at business models, you know, at, at firms because you need to evaluate them. And I think that, you know, being an entrepreneur and let's say running a startup or a, a small, a medium-sized company is, is very, let's say, attractive, you know, it's very fascinating. So I'll probably, let's say, work in whatever industry uh, and, and, and be in command or being part of, let's say, a, a management team uh, who is running the company. So being in charge, and I think that the, the corporate world is also very fascinating. Um, but, you know, the good news is that there are so many areas where you guys you know, can really make a difference nowadays that I'm sure that they were, there are plenty of companies. Uh, that I will then consider if not, you know, if not being in the, in the financial industry. And what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? I think that the best one was don't care too much about what others think about you. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, let's say, it doesn't pay off to be, let's say, that everyone likes you or every, no one hates you and so what, you know, it's, we in a world where you need to differentiate yourself. So it's quite of normal that, you know, people kind of, let's say, some don't like you or they you know, criticize you. That's fine. You know, at least you don't make them, you, you don't, you're not, let's say, uh, someone that no one's pay attention to. And you cannot, let's say, be loved and recognized by everyone. So I think it, it's better to have a plan and then don't get too worried about, First, know what people think about you, what your neighbors get that you don't get. It doesn't matter. You know, it's uh, you are here for the long haul. You know, it's a marathon. So a marathon, you know, it's uh, you, you need to keep, let's say, the, 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 the pace and don't get, let's say, uh, distracted by, by short term events of someone getting, for instance, a promotion that you don't get. Was, it's not the end of the world, you know, you know your way, you know where you're going, so you don't care about others. So yeah, don't care about others, you know, it's, uh, okay, you can be uh, caring, you know, it's good to care about others, but you're not here to, you're not trying to win the presidential election, you know, it's at the end of the day, you, you have your plan, and you need to stick to your plan. Perfect. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time, Charles-Henri. Uh, it was Thank a pleasure so meeting you. Thank you, guys. All the best. Huh? Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support, endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.